I want to thank Jason for leading us this morning, and uh, you know it's a, it's a it's a marvelous thing to think that you can meet with the living God. And here we are together, and we look around and say, "God, do something with us. Do something with us." There's a verse in Psalm 77, verse 12, <coughs> that says. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. So if you were going to ponder the work of God here this morning, if you were going to meditate on His mighty deeds, you could never run out of material to work from, to think about. You could, it would never end. But, um, you know, I've been sharing about sin here lately, America's favorite topic, and uh, I thought, you know, I, I just really need to press into something more than about sin. So I thought, well, his work and his mighty deeds. And Anastasia and I had talked a couple of months ago. Maybe you know what's coming. Why did Jesus have to shed his blood and die for me? If that's not a mighty deed, then I don't know what is. Why did Jesus have to shed his blood? Have you ever felt like your faith is really being stretched? You know? So you start searching for more evidence of truth so you can preach to yourself? Anybody? <laughs> yeah. If our faith is being stretched and I need to find more evidence of truth so I can preach to myself to kind of quiet the other things. Perhaps that test is some sort of situation that you didn't want to happen and now it's happened. Or maybe those flaming mental darts that appear out of nowhere that strike really close to your life, right? Or simply hard decisions. You don't know what to do. And you. What decision should I make? And you wonder, where's my faith? You know, as we've studied sin over a while, and, and Greg did a message uh, about the crucifixion last time, and we had communion together. We think about the nature of sin. I found that I really need to press into God's word because the more sin gets exposed in your life, the more you realize you need a savior. You really need a savior. And I want to ponder his mighty works and meditate on his deeds. I want to know him more. Hopefully all of us want to know him more. As we draw near to Resurrection Day... um, I want to look at this topic as to why Jesus had to shed his blood and die for me. You know, it's pretty gross in our modern sensibilities to think about. Um, Let's recall how it is that a condemned sinner can be saved from God's wrath, by God's grace, for God's glory. Because that's what happens. Let's remember what it means to be made righteous. We're made righteous, just like Jesus in God's sight. Crosswave is soon going to leave for Peru, and there we're going to share the gospel with people, and we're going to explain what Jesus has done for them. And when you share God's plan of salvation with people, many times you get really good questions in return. The most offended people tend to complain with these two questions. Why does someone have to die for God to accept me? Am I really that bad of a person? 
So yeah. Would you rather die yourself? <laughs> well, yeah. And the other question is, well, why do you insist that Jesus is the only way to God? Aren't there many ways to God? I mean, why would God only have one way? If he's so great and powerful, why doesn't he have many ways? I've heard them all. When preaching to folks about the evil of sin and the horror of the crucifixion, the need for faith and the need for repentance and the love of God and the greatness of the gospel, it's good to be convinced and fully persuaded yourself that God saves sinners and sees them as righteous by grace and with justice. He can just he can justly, justly do this. It is a mighty deed. The salvation God offers is simple, but it's also very detailed and it's very precise. On one hand, we must believe that Jesus is the Son of God who died for us. On the other hand, we seek to plumb the depths and climb the heights of who Jesus really is and marvel at his love to rescue sinners and to give them a new heart. Our knowing God's salvation glorifies him and it builds our confidence in him. And helps us understand his mastery over every situation. It's clear that salvation is not what unbelievers think it is. As the world sees religion as only some ritual intended to curry favor with some outside power that might grant them favors in their life. Or they see religion as mere superstition aimed at satisfying a make-believe unknown power of the unseen world. Or they deny God altogether. The fact is, the root of it is, most people are religious. They want to be spiritual. It's an unmistakable characteristic of humans. <coughs> we want to worship some. We are all worshipers. But Christianity is not superstition, nor is it about gaining favors from God. It's about being rescued from God's wrath on the one hand and being loved in Christ on the other. I want to look at the command that started it all in Genesis 2, 16 and 17. Because this sets the stage of God's holiness and his provision and the degree to which he will defend his honor. The Lord commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. We'll stop right there. God had provided everything he needed, man had needed. Everything in a perfect world. Every tree of the garden was Adam's to enjoy. He had, <laughs> he had everything you could think of. But then the command continues. This is, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. So there's a limitation, a re one restriction for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Well, what's that about? Well, that's about the honor of God. If you, I've given you everything you need. I place one tiny little restriction on you. But if you break the restriction, the, 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 my response to that is death. Now, why death? Because God is life. God is life. And the, the penalty is to be separated from life, which is death. 
Adam failed. And he failed not by committing a crime against another man, but rebelling against God's word. For rebellion is at the heart of every sin. But even then, in grace, God promised that one would come to rescue his people. Even at the beginning in Genesis 3. Which brings up more questions. Really, was it necessary for someone to die or could God save another way? Why did it have to be through bloodshed? And why only the blood of Jesus? And why is Jesus' death called a substitutionary atonement? It's big terms. And finally, I want to look at, well, why was Jesus killed on a Roman cross? Rather than the Jewish method of execution of stoning. They all play a picture into the mighty deeds of God. And they're all important things I want you and I and me to think about as we head towards that celebration of the resurrection. So let's look at these questions as we ponder the goodness and the greatness of God's mighty deeds. Why was it necessary that someone else die so I could be saved from death? Now think about it just for a second. Why does someone else have to die so that I can live? What's the point of that? What's the justice of that? They die so I can live. It's all about me, right? <laughs> That's what we think. We might think that. <coughs> well, bottom line is Romans 3.23 declares, for all have sinned. And Romans 6.23 adds, the wages of sin is death. And we put the two things together, for all have sinned, and sin brings death. God, who is life himself, commanded his creation to choose life and be fruitful. He required obedience to his word from everyone, which means doing what is right, living as God defines. God doesn't play any favorites, so he judged any rejection of his rule to be punishable by death, the very opposite of his own nature of life. As a result, those who turn away from the salvation God's provide die in their own sin, like Greg has already reminded us. But note his disposition towards mankind when God showed such grace even while judging sin. In Romans in Genesis 3, 7, they, Adam and Eve, sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. But in verse 21, but the Lord God made for Adam and for Eve, his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Well, what's the difference between fig leaves and animal skins? Death. Death is the difference. You take leaves off a tree, the tree doesn't die. You take a skin off an animal, the animal's dead. It's really blatant. God took animal skins to cover Adam and Eve, which meant the animal had to die. Sin and death are forever linked. If you remember one thing, remember this. Sin and death are forever linked together. Why? Because it is God's rightful and righteous judgment. Leviticus 17.11 says, For the life of a creature is in the blood, and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. Think about it again. The life of a creature is in the blood, and I have given it, the blood, to make atonement for you on the altar. 
It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. Now, what is atonement? Well, this word is very important in this verse. Atonement is, an, is a payment for an offense or injury that secures both justice and satisfaction for the harmed party. To pay the debt caused by disobedience, this verse says, the life of the creature must be ended, meaning this blood must be shed. Why blood? Again, why blood? Because blood's relationship to life. Blood signifies the supreme offering to God. In ancient times, God, again, graciously, but temporarily, allowed an animal's life to be given so the Israelites could live. <coughs> According to God's perfect justice for atonement to be made and forgiveness received from God, even temporarily, an animal had to die. Bulls, goats, sheep, birds, doves. The worship practice in Old Testament Israel included the endless shedding of blood of unblemished animals to temporarily cover their sins. If we were 3,000 years ago in Israel, we would be having blood sprinkled on us. We'd be aware that the priest was inside the curtain doing things with blood. We'd see the altar out in the front. We would see what's happening here. Over and over and over again, blood was poured out to make atonement to God. Why is this atonement? It's a payment that brings about justice and satisfaction to the harm party. So why did they have to do this over and over and over again? Because they kept sinning over and over and over again. And they, they poured out the blood not only for themselves, I mean for the people, but also for themselves. The priests had to do this. Couldn't God save some other way? Many people tend to think that their hard work and good attentions can save. But God says no. Hebrews 9.22 expands what Leviticus 17 says by addressing this directly. He says, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Now, what's clear about the shedding of blood? If you nicked me on my finger, that's not enough blood. It doesn't kill me. Shedding of blood means giving up your life. Because life is in the blood. That's why we're commanded not to drink the blood or eat the, the meat with the blood in it. In it. It's a representation. It's a symbol the blood is a symbol of life that God gives. Right? The Old Testament Passover, an observance that recalled the redemption of the firstborn of every family, illustrated this. A lamb had to die, be completely consumed, and this blood applied over the doorframe to keep the angel of death away. In the New Testament, we see Jesus is the new Passover lamb, the true Passover lamb whose blood was shed to make atonement for our sin. His crucifixion at Passover provided the true promised lamb without blemish or defect to take away sins and reconcile sinners to God. 1 Corinthians 5, 7 For Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. 1 Peter 1, 19 You are ransomed with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So when you think about blood, you're in worship and you think about blood 
one thing you can always hang your head on, it represents life. It's life. Life is in the blood. You take the blood out of a of a person or an animal, it dies. And you can talk about the details of what the blood does, but the life is there. Blood is one of the most precious things God has ever made. Now, people complain when Christians proclaim that there's only one way to God. But Jesus said this many times. No one comes to the Father but by me. What does that mean? There's no other way. And he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. There's no other way. So it's sort of interesting. (coughs) There in the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus himself taught that there was no other way, we can look to the garden when he prayed. And how did he pray? He pleaded with the Father multiple times asking this exact question. Listen as he prays. Mark 14, 36. Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Matthew 26. That's all things are possible for you. Matthew 26, 39. Going a little farther, he fell on his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. And then three verses later, Matthew 26, 42. He went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away from me unless I drink it, may your will be done. You see the, you see the progression? All things are possible for you. We like to pray that prayer. I do. All things are possible for you. Second prayer. If it is possible. That's different than all things are possible. If it is possible. That's a little bit different. The third time. If it is not possible for this cup to be taken away from me unless I drink it. May your will be done. You see the progression. I don't know if he really intended that progression. It's just the way interpreters come. But I look at it and say, wow. Jesus was realizing the answer is there's no other way. When you tell people about the gospel and they say, well, why isn't there another way? You can tell them Jesus asked the father three times if there was any other way. And if there had been another way, the father would have told him. The father would have said yes. The father told Jesus he was not going to remove the cup. Now, what's the cup? The death, the agony, the wrath of God against sin. It must be the will of the father for there to be only one way. And that only one way is Jesus shedding his blood to bear the wrath of God and atone. Not temporarily, but permanently for the sins of his elect. If there was any other way possible, the father would have revealed it then. So we can lay that to rest. There's, there's God's provided one way to glorify His Son. Now, why is Jesus' sacrifice called a substitutionary atonement? Remember, atonement makes amends for wrongs committed. The idea that amends could be made for sin, think about it. The idea that amends could be made for sin reveals God's grace for His chosen people. He never offered a path to atonement for the angels that rebelled against him. 
They were instantly judged, and we call them demons. No offer of salvation for those demons. None. So why did God offer us a way to salvation? I think it's because we're made in His image. And He's not. And He's chosen a people for Himself. In fact, I'll read a scripture about that later. He did not have to offer us atonement. But God had chosen a people for Himself. And so to honor His word and His previous choice and His purposes, He made a way. Ephesians 1, 3 and 4 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. So what happens if God chooses you before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless, and suddenly you're not? And he said, your sin is going to cause you to die. God is, God is, God's got a problem. I mean, it might sound weird to think about it, but God has set the stage such that there is a huge problem that only he can solve. Because every man is a sinner. They're not going to solve it. But he's chosen a people for himself before he made you. And now here you are rebelling against him. We were chosen before we ever sinned. But God is just. He couldn't just pretend our sin didn't exist. I mean, as a parent and a grandparent, sometimes I just pretend I didn't see something that somebody did. You know, as a business manager, you pretend you didn't see it. But God cannot ignore sin. He couldn't wink at it. Every sinful act must be punished by death. Therefore, blood had to be shed. Again, a nice way of saying somebody had to die. It's one of those little phrases, shedding the blood. It means put to death. It means executed. It means slaughtered. In relation to a lamb, it means slaughtered. We deserve to die for our sin. But Jesus volunteered as a substitute in our place to give his blood. Now we trust that he fully paid our debt and purchased our forgiveness. So why did it have to be Jesus' blood and no other blood? Several reasons. But for starters, nobody else is sinless. But it's more than that. You see, even a perfect man would have only tamed eternal life for himself. No one else. He lived a perfect life. He gets eternal life. But how does his life apply to anybody else? It wouldn't. That man's blood would have no value or power to cover anybody else's sin. And we've seen the blood of animals never provide a permanent solution for man's sin. In fact, in Isaiah, God says, I'm tired of your sacrifices. I'm tired of you shedding your blood. It means nothing to me. No, the blood shed to obtain forgiveness of all the sin, of all the elect, must be perfect and infinitely valuable. It has to be infinitely valuable blood. And this selfless act to shed his blood could not be coerced. 
because it would not serve justice to kill an unwilling innocent in the place of the guilty. What righteous judge would put to death an innocent person to save a guilty person? He couldn't coerce him. He couldn't force him. He couldn't obligate him. He had to volunteer willingly to give himself. It would not serve justice, and God is a God of justice, to kill an unwilling, innocent man in place of a guilty man. So this life had to be freely given without any type of obligation. Given that God's justice, that forgiveness from wrath, requires the shedding of blood, then to obtain forgiveness for the elect, those chosen by God before the foundation of the world, requires the lifeblood of of a willing, sinless man with blood of infinite value. You can see the total Venn diagram of possible answers is getting incredibly small. Thank you, Camilla. Huh? <laughs> Thank you, Camilla. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I like saying that. Forgiveness from wrath requires the shedding of blood, and to obtain forgiveness for the elect requires the life blood from a willing, sinless man with blood of infinite value. But what man is that? Who could this be? Who could it possibly be? The promised Messiah, of course. Jesus is that Messiah. The God man, born to Eve by the Holy Spirit, not of Adam. Possessing both human nature and divine nature, living without sin and perfect obedience to God, only his blood was of the infinite value able to pay the full debt of all the sin of all the chosen elect from every tribe and nation for all times. Only his blood was true human blood, like that of sinners. Jesus willingly chose to die on the cross to save his own. But for his glory... God had prophets foretell who was to come and fulfill all the requirements to provide this acceptable sacrifice. On the one hand, God was speaking to his people to give them hope that it was happening. On the other hand, God was shaping the future by defining the exact, precise fulfillment he had in mind. I think it was like God putting himself in this tiny little box. He was, he was fencing himself in of possible solutions. I mean, I like to keep multiple solutions available at any time I can choose whenever I need to. God was foretelling, I have one precise answer. And all of creation and all of time is going to point to that one answer. He's, he's narrowing down the field of possibilities so that there'll be no mistake. Jesus is the Messiah. For God has said that the Messiah must be a son of King David. Well, that eliminates <laughs> a lot of the world's population, right? Son of King David. He must be tempted by the devil more than Adam was. He must face every human and spiritual temptation, trial, pain, weakness, emotion, hunger, and betrayal. Let live without thought of sin, of attitude, or speech or action. This Messiah must fulfill more than 300 prophecies and promises. I mean, every single promise God gave is another limitation that God's playing, placing on who the answer could be. 300 of them. Where he was born. 
how he was supposed to enter Jerusalem. I mean, just 300, more than 300. I think there's somebody said there's 360, but I'm, I said more than 300. The Messiah must show himself to be the greatest prophet, the greatest priest. And he wasn't even born of Aaron. And the greatest king, working greater signs and greater wonders and overshadowing all holy men coming both before him and after him. His life and his blood are one of a kind. Do you know of any other religious founder who claimed to fulfill every prophecy of the Holy Scriptures? Jesus claimed it. Do you know any other religious founder who claimed to complete to perfection all the law of God? The potential candidates gets incredibly shrinking small all the time. Do you know any other religious founder who claimed to be the firstborn of the dead? Yet to be someone with the grace to willingly give his life away through horrible death, but also the remarkable power to take his life back again by rising from the dead three days after death. You can see how God is offended when somebody says, isn't there any other way? Even the question would offend God. He says, I've given you the Prince of Heaven and you want something else? You're going to try to hold up your good works and compare to him. Only God could truly understand the immeasurably massive debt we have for forgiveness and to make full provision to satisfy it. So the Messiah must be God. The Messiah had to be God because only he could understand the full debt he had to pay. But it was a human who had transgressed God. So it wouldn't be, it would, it would, to make it just and right, a human must be the, will, the one who had to suffer. The only willing and able God-man to fulfill God's design from the Messiah is Jesus. He is Lord and there is no other. And his death not only paid the debt we owe, his resurrection demonstrated and proved that his kingdom conquers death. His victory didn't try to go around death. It didn't try to escape death in some way. His path of victory went straight through the heart of death and came out the other side in glory. I mean, if you're gonna if you're gonna beat something, compared to, to compare going around something to going through it, going right through it, which is the greater victory? Plowing right through the midst of it. And that's what Jesus did to death. This is the victory Jesus offers all who believe in him. When you ponder his mighty works and his wonderful deeds. God has provided the greatest redemption ever. To cleanse sin from every person who trusts fully and completely in the precious blood that Jesus shed for us. Now, I can't cover all of the aspect about the blood of God here this morning. Last Sunday, we, we drank the juice and as symbolic 
of what Jesus said, eat my flesh and drink my blood. He want, and, and I said that the blood is about the life. And so when he says that, he's saying, I want my life in you. My flesh is my life. My blood is my life. You eat this, then my life is in you. Just a symbol of what's happening in the spiritual realm. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19 says, For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish. (coughs) And 1 John 1, 7, For if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus' Son cleanses us from all sin. Again, the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. The life of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. The Spirit of God cleanses us from all sin. The Word of God cleanses us from all sin. It represents who he is. It's like when you pray in Jesus' name. It's not the magic elixir of, of a name. It's the, everything that name stands for. And the blood is everything the life stands for. So why was Jesus killed on the cross rather than by stoning? This seems sort of like after the fact. The climax has already happened. Why do we want to talk about this? Well, it's really interesting. Twice the Bible mentions that Jews picked up stones to cast at Jesus, but he slipped their grasp somehow. For as he said, his time had not yet come. The Jewish method of execution was stoning. And... A couple of years later, they had killed Stephen this way, even while Paul watched it happen. So why was Jesus not stoned but crucified on the cross? Well, the Bible tells us that Jesus came in the fullness of time. A time specifically selected by God. When all of the powers at work that God had arranged. A time when Israel was subject to the power of Rome. Crucifixion was a Roman-designed execution authorized by Roman judges and performed by Roman soldiers. It was invented for Rome's enemies, slaves, and the lowest rank of people, not for freedmen, not for citizens, not for kings and princes. But regarding Jesus, the Jews and the Gentiles had finally found something on which to agree. How to execute Jesus. Of anything they were ever going to agree on. Their agreement was how to kill Jesus. And to put him on the Roman cross. That was their most united moment. Why? Here are several points I want you to consider. If Jesus had been killed by stoning. The world would see his death as an internal Jewish affair. Oh, it's just something the Jews did. Doesn't affect me. It's something the Jews did. But this is bigger than the Jews. Acts 4.27 says, Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant, Jesus. (coughs) Crucifixion brought genuine Roman involvement into Jesus' death. As the world powers, the powers at play here work together against God's Holy Son. Even though the Jews thought they were just rejecting their king, it was Rome putting to death an innocent man. I mean, Pilate said, this man is innocent. I find no guilt in him. 
So Rome's vaunted justice and glory was shown as corrupt. The best the world had to offer was corrupt. But there's more. Because God had spoken through Moses the seemingly odd verse in Numbers 21.9. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. <coughs> they looked at a snake from whom the first sin was propagated. And they lived. Jesus referred to this in John 3.14. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Did Jesus compare himself to a snake? Yes. Yes. Jesus compared himself to a snake. Jesus compared himself to the source of the original sin. Why would he do that? I'll tell you. And then later in John, Jesus added this prophetic word in John 12, 32 and 33. And I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. He said this to show what kind of death he was going to die. Death by the cross. Due to the horror of the cross, the sacrifice Jesus made for his own people demonstrated his love in the most glorious conceivable manner. You see, when Moses put the bronze snake up there and they looked at it, they saw the snake and they were set free from the snakes on the ground. Jesus compared himself to a snake because when God put on him all the sin of the elect, Jesus, the Bible says, became sin for us. Jesus became like the snake. He became sin. So that when we look and see our sins on Jesus, we are set free from all the snakes here on the ground. That wouldn't have happened if he was stoned. He wouldn't fulfill what Moses had really intended by this verse. Or that Moses had done back in ancient Israel. And this sacrifice made Jesus' demonstration of love the most glorious conceivable demonstration you can imagine. Willingly becoming sin like a snake so that anyone who looks to them and puts their sin there is set free while Jesus endures the horror and the wrath while his blood flows out. Jesus said in John, a little bit later, John 15, 13, greater love has no one than this, than someone lay down his life for his friends. And later in Romans 5, 8, Paul goes on, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, while we were still snakes, Christ died for us. There's no greater love than what Jesus demonstrated willingly for his own people on the cross. 
but it goes deeper than what you can just see. Because Jesus not just endured physical death, he also endured the full wrath of God. We don't know how to describe it. The Bible talks about the lake of fire. Talks about gnashing of teeth. All those are just road signs that point the way to where (coughs) horror (coughs) waits for those who reject Christ. There's more. God also used the Pharisees' hatred of Jesus and their false view of Scripture to utterly silence them and eternally bless us. You see, Rome designed crucifixion to inflict the greatest pain and the utmost shame on those deemed unworthy to live. But for Jews, to be hung on a tree was to be cursed by God. Used only for people judged guilty as murderers and heretics. In Galatians 3.13, Paul quotes from Moses in Deuteronomy 21-23. He says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, this is the Deuteronomy part, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Moses indicated that anyone hung on a tree was cursed by God. Now we think of a curse as a dirty word. That's not what this means. (laughs) This is a pronouncement of judgment from God that is irrevocable. Cursed by God. The Pharisees thought, they must have thought, that Jesus dying on the cross instead of by stoning would put an end to all the buzz about Jesus. The many confrontations with the priests, all the healings on the Sabbath day, the undeniable miracles would put an end to all that. Why? Because they thought the curse of the cross would show all the fervor to be meaningless Because no one could deny God's curse associated with hanging on the tree. Every Jewish man knew this. You hang on a tree, you're cursed by God. How could the Messiah be cursed by God? He must not be the Messiah. That was their plan. Pretty good plan. Let's use God's word to convict the guy. Pretty good plan. He must be an imposter. We are doing you a favor by getting rid of the imposter. Applaud what we do. Yeah, we'll take it. Come on. Give us some applause. We've done what is right and good and holy. We've protected our nation. This, but this, this diabolical death plan was going to be the Sanhedrin's ultimate victory. They could taste it. We're going to win. But guess what? It turned into utter defeat for them. What's more, it turned into glorious victory for all those who trust in Jesus. That wouldn't have happened if he was stoned. (coughs) Why do I say it turned into victory? Because God had a deeper, richer purpose in Moses' words. Yes, Jesus died for us. And yes, Jesus was cursed for us. Jesus bore the full full fury of God's curse and wrath in place of those who would trust in him by faith. Which is what I started the message. I'm searching for faith. Come on, build my faith. Paul preached Jesus from Deuteronomy 21. 
You know that when you read Deuteronomy 21, you can preach to yourself about Jesus. By quoting the very words that must have been in the minds of the Sanhedrin, cursed is everyone who hung on the tree. But this is what, how Paul interprets it. Everyone who does not obey the law is cursed. No one has obeyed the law, so everyone is cursed by God. We read that in Romans 3. Jesus was cursed for believers, evident by his death on a tree. Jesus redeemed believers from the curse because he had paid the price of the curse so that those who believe in him would be blessed, not temporarily, blessed permanently, forever. What the world expected to be Jesus' most humiliating defeat became his most glorious victory. Can you get that into your hearts and your heads? What was going to be the most humiliating, complete and utter disaster turned into ultimate power and victory for all of those who believe. By triumphing over death, by going through it, shows that death is utterly defeated. The curse, you shall surely die, in Christ is broken. It's satisfied. But for those who believe, it's broken. The curse of death that God pronounced in the Garden of Eden is completely broken and powerless against everyone who trusts in Jesus as the victor over death. Take confidence in your Savior, dear church. Come to Jesus. Confess your sin willingly. For His forgiveness because of the blood of Christ is just a prayer away. Psalm 77. We ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Pray with me. You became sin for us, God. You, you, took, you took the curse. That was uttered for those who broke your law. You took it. Not temporarily, but permanently. Eternally. And then the scripture reminds us several times that well, it wasn't just that Jesus remained dead because... Death had no grip on him. Death had nothing to accuse him with. And he died because he willingly gave himself for us. Lord, in every way, you are the perfect, beautiful Savior that we need. And nothing else can ever compare. Jesus, convince us, persuade our hearts to follow after you. To love you with all of our heart, or all of our minds, all of our soul, and all of our strength. Blessed be your name, Lord God. Blessed be your name. Hebrews nine fourteen. 
How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? Acts 20, 28. He bought the church with his own blood. Revelation 1, 5. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. Colossians 1, 20. To reconcile himself, to reconcile to himself all things by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Romans 5, 9. We have now been justified by his blood. How much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? I could go on and on and on and on. 